Hello, Hope Church family. I want to invite you to open to the book of Matthew. We are actually going to be in the book of Matthew this evening. So turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Now last week, as we introduced Matthew, we talked about how Matthew wants to introduce Jesus as king, the rightful king to Israel, but also to the world. Matthew was very specifically written to Jewish people. However, it was used as a book to introduce Jesus and his teachings to the early church, the most widely read manuscript of the early church that was spread all over the known world and even into different parts they found manuscripts of it. Now, a lot of people have been asking me to read another genealogy. I'm just kidding. Nobody's asked me to read another genealogy since Ezra and Nehemiah, no one has said that, but I hear that's popular to say on social media and it goes without being challenged. So I wanted to try it out. So we are going to start off with another genealogy, but please understand the importance of this genealogy. So often we can just skip over genealogies because it's just a list of names. And we just went through them in Ezra and Nehemiah. But those were the last genealogies that were documented, probably by Ezra himself, before Matthew writes this genealogy. It's so important because this is the only documented genealogy anymore of what happened during that 400 years of silence. So we don't really get genealogies. In fact, I was just reading that uh, in America, a teacher would take different students from different ethnic backgrounds and have them write out their genealogies just to see if, for instance, one of the students was from China and another student was from Korea and another student was from the Pacific Islands and different American nationalities or different races and he would have them write it out. And he said across the board, it was rare for them to be able to go back any further than three generations. So genealogies lose their feel to us in modern times. We don't keep track much further than our grandfather, great-grandfather, or grandmother, whatever it is. But in Jewish times, remember, we, if you've been doing your Bible, the Read Scripture app, you've seen these handed down to tribes. You've seen them handed down to specific families. This is who was the rightful family to own this property from this city to this city to this mountain. Or, and so in Jewish custom, it was very important to know your tribe, uh, whether it's tribe of Judah or Paul talks about being of the tribe of Benjamin. There was very important to know your location. It, your genealogy is what settled arguments over land or where you were to operate. Uh, for instance, just in Ezra, when you're going through Ezra, the Levites that couldn't prove they were Levites had to have a different job because to have a Levite or have a person operating in the functions of a temple as a Levite was supposed to without being a Levite, in the Old Testament, you saw people die. God would strike them dead for doing that. And so genealogy played such an important role. And as we read through this genealogy, you'll see why. Now, the big theme of both the genealogy you see here in Matthew 1 and the genealogy you see in Luke chapter 3 is to point that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, that he had the correct bloodline to it. Now, Matthew follows the bloodline through Joseph, which as we know, and we'll talk about next week, Joseph wasn't actually 
the biological father of Jesus. That was God. That'll be a fun discussion next week. But Joseph was the legal, because Joseph was the guardian of Jesus, he was the legal son of Joseph, and there an heir to the throne through David. You're going to see some of these names through Solomon. But Mary actually had the correct bloodline for Jesus to be heir to the throne. Again, Mary goes back through David and through David's other son, Nathan, and through that lineage, we get to Mary. Both of the correct tribe of Judah, both Jewish. If Jesus had had a Gentile parent, he would not have been able to be heir to the throne. Uh, Matthew, again, with a Jewish perspective, you'll see the genealogy start at Abraham and work down, which was the Jewish style of genealogy. In Luke, who was Greek, Luke starts from Mary and works all the way back to Adam, which was the Greek way of studying genealogies. So a lot of fascinating different notes in genealogy. So again, never just pass them over. Ask questions. See if names are mentioned more than once in the Bible. Uh, find out the meanings of names. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend a lot of these names for things to name your children, but you can and have fun when your child can't pronounce their own name their entire life. But the other thing that's so fascinating and just kind of a side note on this genealogy is, and I've mentioned this a lot, in the year 70 AD, the Romans finally destroyed Jerusalem and they burned the temple to the ground. And that was very significant because the temple is what held all of the genealogies. So even today, uh, Jews cannot trace their lineage to know what tribe they're, supposed, they're originally from. That burning of the temple in 70 AD was such a fulfillment of so many prophecies, but also set the world stage for what was future. But something that's fascinating that never really hit me until this past week was that Jesus is the last recorded rightful heir to the throne of David. When that was destroyed in 70 AD, there was no longer genealogies kept or nobody could rightfully claim who fit in where. So Jesus was born the rightful heir of the bloodline in the kingship of Israel. And then everything was destroyed. So the last recorded correct king in the correct bloodline is Jesus, who still sits on that throne of his kingdom, not just of Israel, but the world. And he is still the king of kings and always will be for eternity. So I just thought that was fascinating. And hopefully I've done enough so that as I read through this, you will read along with me. So we are going to jump in and uh, for those math scholars out there, which of course I am not, you'll notice there's some numerical discrepancies, especially for those of you who have memorized First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and know off the bat that some names are missing. Uh, another way of that Hebrew would, the Hebrews would write things, the Jews would write things was again, not everybody could afford their own copy of a scroll. And so they would do things in different numerical orders, but also the Hebrew words had different uh, numerical meanings. And so we're going to see the number 14 a lot. That was the uh, number equivalent of the word David. Uh, in Hebrew, there are no vowels. And so the D and the V and the D, I think D is worth six points and V is worth four and D is worth six. So six, four, six, adding to 14. Again, not good with numbers, but that would mean that you could remember it because you're going from the line of David. There's three different groups of 14 talking about David, and he does leave names out 
to make sure that that happens so that it's easier to memorize. This was very commonplace uh, for Hebrew writings like this. So again, I just wanted to kind of point those different things out as you uh, go back and study this genealogy all week long, which I'm sure all of you will. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, again showing that he was heir to the throne, and then the son of Abraham, showing that he was of the correct lineage uh, racially. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Remember, the king would come out of Judah, so this demonstrates that he came from the correct tribe. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abahad, Abahad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok. By the way, I do like the name Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. We did it. We got through it. Now, you're probably wondering, great job, Rob. How do I apply this to my life? What are the points that are in this genealogy that you could possibly make a message out of? Maybe some of you already know where I'm going with this. This is so fascinating to me. And again, I love history, but there is no book like the Bible. There is no book that you can pick up and start to go through and realize that the writings in it are just as relevant today as they were when it was written. That this is an eternal book. That this book is the spoken words of who Jesus is. So this is fascinating and maybe some of these names have popped out. You recognize a lot of these names and we're going to go through some of them in just a second. But the first thing that I want you to take away from this, number one, is God is faithful. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. When we look at this list by just a, a slight overview of knowing the Bible, you see names that have no business being in a lineage of the perfect Messiah, of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you see names that pop out going, that dude did some messed up stuff. 
That person was not right. I think it's so important as we're talking about the kingdom of God, that in God's kingdom, God can take broken things and make them right and use them for his purpose. The things that we would never ever expect. Remember last week we talked about the least likely disciple and how all of us are the least likely disciples because all of us have sin. Every person in this genealogy, whether they're remembered well like Zerubbabel or they're remembered not so well, they all have a place in God. That nothing that God has planned can be thwarted by our human doings. So God has a way and I want you to really think about this. Because all of us, I believe, maybe it's just me, we struggle with our past. We allow Satan to use things to tell us that we can never be used by God, that we are worthless, that we are useless. How dare we do things of God when we are so unworthy? And he's right. We have no place in doing them. But God tells us in Corinthians that it is because of that that God demonstrates his power. That God demonstrates his power through using sinful human beings for his glory. Why? Because God is faithful. So God has a way of weaving together an intricate pattern in our lives that we could never understand, yet it is all part of the master's plan. Not the master plan, the master's plan plan that God has woven together this unbelievable story in your life and my life to be used for his glory and he invites us in to a partnership with him the almighty creator perfect holy God to accomplish his purpose this is what's amazing about God his will will be done whether we want it to be or not there are several people in this list who went way against God and took matters into their own hands. And God still used that for his glory. In no way am I saying go out and do whatever you want because God can do it. Trust me, it is way better to be on the right path with God, being guided by the Holy Spirit, than not. But God is faithful. And even though Israel had, and you look at the timelines from Abraham who was wealthy, and then you go and they're in slavery. It goes back and forth and up and down. They obey God. They don't obey God. And as we're reading through the Old Testament, you see this over and over and over again, this pattern. But even though Israel had incredible victories and humiliating defeats, was incredibly prosperous and also suffered in slavery and in exile, was home to both heroes and absolutely monstrous villains, though through it all, God's plan was never off course. Through all of these ups and downs, God's plan was never off course. That's why I encourage you to go through and look at these names. Now, some of them you won't find. Um, Something else that Matthew did is he kind of substituted some really bad people out uh, and kind of put other names in uh, just because he wanted to present Jesus as king and he wanted to be careful, I think, in how we came across with that. Or the name was just recorded differently when he recorded it than what we have There's a lot of other theories there, but trust me, it is the word of God. And Matthew knew what he was doing and had a purpose in it. But still, these names are, they should bring so much hope and life to us, knowing that if God can use someone that did some of the things that these people did, he can definitely use you or me. The people of Israel may have been incredibly unfaithful to God at times, but God was always incredibly faithful to them. God is always faithful to his 
word. God is faithful. God does not break his promises no matter what we do. That leads me to what does that mean for us? We've said something before, and again, you're going to hear this a lot. We saw it last week with Matthew, and I want you to really think about how this affects you. Your past doesn't define you. God does. Your past doesn't define you. God does. When you make Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, you are washed with his blood, the perfect clean blood of the perfect lamb, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And God no longer sees you in your sin. He sees the perfect blood. You've been passed over is where that term comes from by the blood of the lamb. And now you are grafted into the family of God. If Jesus is the king of kings, if God is ruler over all, and now we are grafted in to that family, that makes us princes and princesses of the almighty, powerful king. So when we allow Satan to convince us that because of things that have happened in the past, we can no longer be used by God, it is a lie. God is faithful. He has cleansed you when you're in that relationship with him to be used for his glory through being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Do not buy into Satan's lies. It is how Satan distracts us from accomplishing, building the kingdom of God here on earth. The mission that we all have. Your past no longer defines you. God does. So this genealogy shows that Jesus was going to be a king, not of a hammer fist, not of law, but he was going to be a king full of grace and mercy. Look at the people that he used. And I want to pick out five names. And these five names are fascinating because of what they share in common. If when you notice when you were reading through the genealogies in Ezra and Nehemiah, or if you go back to any of the other genealogies, there's something missing in all of those that appears five times in this genealogy. So I'll go ahead and look, just kidding, I'll tell you what it is. They have listed five women in this genealogy. Women are not listed in genealogies. In fact, it was really a, a shame and nothing that God had originally intended were for women to have this lowly position. And what happened, and we'll see Jesus talk about this in, in Matthew 18 and 19 in different parts, was the women in this society, because of the influence of outer cultures. Again, if you read through Levitical law, it seems like very bad for women, but understand all those laws were set in place to protect women because that was not something that happened in other societies and other cultures. So women kind of played, I think it was like a, they were worth like half a man or something like that, and they were very much looked down upon. So when you see them, it almost seems like they're being looked down on in Leviticus. Understand they were actually being brought up out of any place that they would have in another culture. So women were never really listed in the genealogies. The women had to rely very heavily on their husbands because they weren't going to have a job. Um, we also see in Matthew 19 that divorce was just commonplace, that the Pharisees are the ones that actually said, you can divorce somebody just for doing, having burnt toast. Uh, then they tell Jesus, why did Moses command us to divorce our wives? And Jesus said, no, Moses never commanded you. He permitted it because of your own sin. And so women were very much really reliant upon men, whether it was their husband or whether it was their male offspring. And so with all of these women, there was severe injustices done to them. 
And in a lot of cases, they took matters into their own hands in sinful ways to protect themselves and to protect their families. So there's a lot of different things that they have in common. And I think, again, going back to last week, Matthew does this very much on purpose because he knows what it is to be an outcast of society who had somebody like Jesus look past and through him and see, just erase all the horrible things and say, Matthew, follow me. And so I think Matthew being knowledgeable in the scriptures and knowing the, who these women were and what they stood for in Jewish culture, he associates with them. He knows what it is to be looked down on. He knows what it is to not have a place. He knows what it is to both do injustice, but also suffer from injustices done to him by the very people who call themselves the people of God. And so I think there's a lot of more of an emotional tie-in uh, with these women, but we'll see at the end, I think it has another purpose as well, defending somebody that Matthew may have known and Matthew may have cared for. So the first is Tamar. You find the story of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. First thing that stands out about four of these women is they are Gentiles. It is believed Tamar was Canaanite, both uh, Tamar and one more I'll mention in a second. They're not sure if they were Jewish or not, but more than likely they were Gentile women. So they would not have had full access uh, as the, a Jewish woman would have. They would have been uh, even more severely mistreated by society, whether or not they decided to follow God. Uh, Tamar, the story is uh, in Genesis 38, but Tamar marries Judah, the Judah, Joseph's brother, and she marries one of Judah's sons. And that son does not give her an heir. And so that son dies. Then, as customary was to protect her, she now has to marry the next younger brother and have offspring and hopefully the thought was to have a male offspring with that son. That son dies as well. So Judah promises that when the third son comes of age, she will marry him. So Judah takes care of her in the home, but again, more than likely she's a Canaanite. She's looked down on. Uh, she's not taken care of properly. And when the son comes to age, Judah has him marry somebody else that would be more prosperous for the family and not Tamar. So again, this is sin. Don't get me wrong. What Tamar does is wrong. She takes matters into her own hand. She obviously knows Judah. She knows his shortcomings and she knows his struggles and sins and whatever else it is. So Tamar goes to a city that she knows Judah goes to and she dresses up as a prostitute. And when Judah goes to that city, she lures him in and she ends up getting pregnant by Judah and tricking him. Why? Because she wants to carry on the lineage that she was promised and Judah has wronged her. And not only does she have a son, she has twin sons. And both of them, Matthew mentions actually both of them, uh, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. Not both of them continue the lineage, but I think Matthew's proving a point. And so now Tamar, who plays a harlot, as the Bible says, and tricked Judah into doing this in a sinful way, becomes in the lineage of the Messiah, which would be shocking to people that knew Jewish history. Then you go down a little bit further, and actually a story we just got into uh, two days ago, or depending on when you're watching this video, as we entered into the book of Joshua, we meet Rahab. I've always felt bad for Rahab because throughout scripture, she's known as Rahab the prostitute. And I can't imagine going through life and your mom 
has the nickname Rahab the prostitute, even though she's no longer a prostitute and having to fight for that constantly. Joshua marches in, they march around Jericho. Uh, hopefully you've read the story. If not, uh, it is in Joshua chapter two and you also see uh, Rahab in Joshua chapter six. But they go and they destroy the city. But before they, they do that, they send spies in. Rahab gets the spies, she protects them. Again, she sins. This huge theological argument of whether it was sin when she lied or it wasn't, I believe a lie is sin. So she lies, she hides the spies, she sends people to go find them. The spies say, hey, that was, thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing that. But she says, I ask this in return. I know how mighty your God is. She demonstrates faith in God. And she says, I want you to protect me and my family. Again, it was wrong to lie. I've heard other, I've had professors in college who said that it was okay here. Uh, so feel free to argue. But she lied. She sinned. She protected the spies. And in return, she said, I know that your God will destroy this city. And I want to protect me and my family. And they say, well, as long as you keep your word, we will not destroy you. And I actually love the story because the whole building is destroyed. And it seems that Rahab was wealthy enough that she probably actually owned a brothel that was built into the walls of Jericho. So she must have had some type of a financial background to do that, that a normal prostitute wouldn't have. But she protects her entire family. Uh, God protects her because of the faith that she demonstrated. Not only that, but she is grafted into the Jewish culture. She marries a man named Salmon, and they have a child named Boaz. And Boaz, and this leads into the next person that we see, Boaz more than likely is quite a bit older, an older man, possibly married before, we don't know. But it seems Boaz is faithful when nobody else was during this time of the judges. The next book will be in the read scripture app. And that is the next name that shows up in this genealogy, and that is Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites carried so much weight with that name because a Moabite was the offspring of Moab who was born when Lot's oldest daughter got him drunk and had an incestuous son that they named Moab, was the father of the Moabites. So the Moabites were always looked at with disgust. And if you remember, uh, when the Israelites are coming out of Israel, they're told that Moabites can't enter into the fellowship of the Jews until the 10th generation. But we meet Ruth, who is a Moabite, and Ruth's husband and brother and their mom named Naomi. It seems Naomi and her husband and her two sons flee Israel during a drought. They go into Moabite. Their sons both marry, Orpah and Ruth. As they're leaving, or the sons die and they're coming back, and Naomi looks at her two daughter-in-laws, who are now widows, and says, go back to your people, the Moabites. And Orpah says, deal, and she leaves. And Ruth says, no, your God has become my God. So Ruth, again, demonstrates this incredible faith in the king of kings, the one true God. And she follows Naomi, even though she would have been looked down on in society as a Gentile, as a Moabite. Naomi is no longer able to care for herself. And this is how I see like there is so much injustice being done in Israel in the time of the judges that you'll see when you read through it. Judges is one of those shocking books that you can't believe is recorded like this. But Ruth, who is a Moabite, is obeying the law better than the other people. She goes and she takes care of the widow Naomi, herself being a widow. And Boaz is demonstrated as maybe one of the few people that is following the law of uh, 
the Mosaic law of following and letting the poor people and the foreigner go through his fields and only going through his fields one time and purposefully leaving things behind so that others, the poor and the widows and the orphans can come through and collect food for themselves. And because of that, he, Boaz, notices Ruth, this hard-working Moabite, who I'm sure finds out is taking care of her widow mother-in-law. And it stands out. And Boaz and Ruth end up getting married. And it's a wonderful story. Most people don't realize that Ruth was probably way younger than Boaz. Then it's not as pretty. And Boaz isn't illustrated as such a beautiful looking man in most illustrated Bibles. Not that I know. But Boaz and Naomi and become the great grandparents of King David, which is fascinating to me. And so that is our second, I'm sorry, our third name. Our fourth name is Bathsheba. Bathsheba had such a horrible connotation, more than likely she was a Gentile. She was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. Uh, again, we don't know if she was Jewish or a Hittite or a Gentile, but it is believed that she would have been had she been Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, and you've got to read that story in the Bible because it is like superhero stuff. But Uriah is just this incredible warrior who is so faithful to King David, who has chosen to follow the God of Israel, and it's him and his wife, Bathsheba, and he is this faithful warrior who always does the best that he can for David. Bathsheba's name is left out. She is referred to as the mother of Solomon because Bathsheba would have brought up all these negative connotations of David's sin, and David was looked at with such high esteem in Jewish culture. Nobody liked using the word Bathsheba as, long, as far as we can gather from, from studying this. But Bathsheba went up on a roof to take a bath and was noticed by David. And again, scholars argue about whether it was on purpose. It starts off that, that passage that at the time when kings go to war, David was home. So more likely, David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Um, in some ways, it's alluded to that David by force made them bring Bathsheba to him. Uh, sometimes people refer to Bathsheba as an adulteress who lured him in. Again, it's a huge debate. Either way, David brings in Bathsheba's wife and gets her pregnant while her husband is off fighting for him. David, through a series of tries to trick Uriah and get him to make him think he's the father, but Uriah stays faithful. And so David hands him, not knowing Uriah takes a letter from David to the general of his armies that was his death sentence. He goes into battle, Joab calls the army out, and Uriah is killed, and David presents himself as a hero by bringing in this poor, widowed, pregnant woman, knowing full well that it was him that did it to her, and also had one of his mighty men killed in battle to try to cover up his sin. Bathsheba, the child, is lost in infancy as punishment because of David's sin, and then the second child that Bathsheba has is Solomon, who would take over the throne, and again is in this lineage of Jesus. Solomon was known as one of the greatest kings, wealthiest kings, wisest people to ever live, and Jesus is in all these horrendous stories. These are the four women that are brought up to, possibly all Gentiles. All of them have just this unique perspective of injustice being done to them, being part of injustice, being the wrong person, the person that you would never imagine would play into. If you're going to mention women in the lineage of a Messiah, these are not the women that you want to mention. Yet Matthew is proving a point that God is full of grace and mercy, that this king is not like anybody 
thought he would be. And that brings us to the fifth name. More than likely the only Jewish woman that is mentioned, and that is Mary. Because if she had been a Gentile, Jesus would not be a rightful heir to the throne of Israel. But in steps Mary, who it seems has lived a godly life. She may have only been 15, 16 years old, but it seems that in a time where nobody was following God, she may have been one of the people that were following after God, says she was faithful. And we'll find out more about her story next week. But just know that I think Matthew is writing this because he would have known Jesus' mother, as most of the disciples did. He would have seen the ridicule that she probably put up with her entire life, the shame that she would have undergone being pregnant before she was married. Again, we'll see that Joseph even said it was go- Joseph was going to divorce her quietly before the marriage was made when he found out that she was pregnant. So the shame and the guilt that she would have had to endure and trying to let people know, oh no, it wasn't a human that did this, God did this. It's not a believable story. I know because I've worked at Bible colleges and I've had people tell me that story for themselves, and I wish I was kidding. This was the shame. And I think Matthew connected with Mary, and again, this is just me, because he saw the shame that she underwent her entire life. He knew the shame that she must have felt when she was watching her son be crucified right in front of her eyes. He understood the pain that even after Jesus died and rose again, the shame that she probably felt for the rest of her life when people looked down at her and thought she was a fraud and a liar and a a pregnant before she was married woman. And yet God in his plan, who does he tell us to look out for? The fatherless, the widow, the orphan. He tells us that we are to be providing justice to these people, that we are to be introducing them into the kingdom of God. Why? Because it isn't their past that defines them. God does. It isn't your past that defines you. God does. For us to judge somebody else because of their past while excusing what our past looks like is wrong. It is not a godly behavior. It is not something that is bringing glory to God's name. It is not how we are to build the kingdom of the rightful heir, the king of the world. So as we go through life, have that in the back of your mind that all of these women demonstrated that Jesus has a plan for everyone. Women were incredibly looked down on in society at this time, yet Matthew elevates them, demonstrating what he saw Jesus doing. Think of all of the women that Jesus was healing, of of Mary Magdalene, of Mary and Martha, of his mother, of the people that Jesus was always looking out for. We're going to see all of these miracles that were done, but Jesus didn't excuse women. He brought them into the fold. The women played a very important part as you read through Paul's writings of helping establish the early church from the very get-go. And I think it was because they saw Jesus elevating women when everybody else was pushing them down that Matthew recognized it isn't just me, it isn't just women, it was everyone. That Jesus was a servant of the people that he was king over and that we are to live out that servant-type leadership every day of our lives. That there is nobody that we should be looking down on for color or race or country of origin or you name it gender, whatever it is, there is no reason to look down on another human being. We are to elevate them. We are to look out for their best interests. 
Michael J. Wilkins in his commentary says that Matthew shows that God can use anyone, however marginalized or despised, to bring about his purposes. This is the master's plan. Jesus is king, and he has a plan for you, and he has a plan for me. So are you relying on earthly things to determine your worth, or are you relying on the king to direct you in the very specific place he has designed you specifically for? Are we allowing outside earthly voices to direct our life, or are we allowing the King of Kings, who knows the plan that Hebrews calls the author of life, are we allowing him to direct the where we should go? The King of Kings has a role for you in his kingdom. Are you seeking this out? I saw another quote, and I'm not sure who it's by, but it said, it's not who we are, but whose we are. It's not who we are, it's not what we've attained to be, it's whose we are. That we belong to the King. That's the question I want to leave you with and and think about through this week. What is the role that you're playing in the kingdom? I want you to discuss that role in your uh, community groups. I want you to talk about that with other people this week. What is the role that you are playing in the kingdom of God? Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come to your word and hopefully be encouraged by the fact that our past doesn't define us, but you do. That you are in the business of taking things that are broken and making them right for your glory. Lord, I pray that we seek you out, that we seek you out in your word, that we seek you out in time of prayer and meditation, and that, Lord, you would convict our hearts through the Holy Spirit to follow after you and to be a representation, an ambassador of your kingdom. Lord, that above all else, we will build your kingdom and not focus on ours. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.